everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz and Karen Brenchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 84, Interview with Richard Kadri. Richard has written successful novels, stories, articles about art, culture, technology, Richard is a perfect example for what we've talked about in so many episodes about how there are many, many paths to creative expression and content one can follow in the same writing career. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Your Sandman Slim perfectly captures the 1970s Hollywood of my childhood. I I wanted to say that because the way you described it from the opening book was, this was my childhood view. Ah. Did you live in Hollywood? Did you grow up there? How do you... (laughs) Yeah, I, I lived in L.A. for um, several years, and I go back regularly. So it's my favorite place to write about. Uh, it's, you know, basically New York and L.A. for me are the sort of two basic cities in the world. And both places, because both places are fractals, there are in, this infinite depth in both places. Uh, L.A. I tend to write about, certainly in Sandman Slim, because I kind of see it as the central American city. New York is a European city, whereas L.A. is as far west as you can go away from Europe. And it's the place where America established its dreams and broadcasts them to the world. I was going to say back up a little bit, because before we get, you know, five million New Yorkers rising as one saying, what what do you mean there? Tell, Tell me a little bit what you mean. How do you what's your vision of New York in the way that it's different? Well, I, I love New York. I'm from Brooklyn, so I am in no way attacking New York. Like I said, New York City, in terms of just cities, is my favorite place in the world. So don't get me wrong. I just think of your of in terms of pure Americana, of the the greatness and the banality of American dreams, um, and Hollywood being centered in the West Coast the West Coast dreams of America, where we came from Europe, we settled in the East, but then there are, you can't get away from the fact there are, there are strong European ties in the East. Mm-hmm. And so as we progressed West, we became, I don't know how to say it, you know, other, other than more stripped down basic Americana. And by the time you hit the West Coast, it's Hollywood, it's advertising, it's cowboy culture, it's car culture, all the things that have made America what it is. For the past, you know, certainly for the past, how many years now, 60 years, the dreams of America, the model of America uh, comes from the West Coast and LA very specifically. That's really interesting. I, I have to say, when you said that New York was a European city, I did take that as a compliment. <laughs> It's in New York, yeah. Okay. I have to disagree with you at one point. It's not the last 60 years. It's the last 100 years, really, when, when Hollywood got moving in the 20s and created the reality, you know, uh, the whitewashing of the cowboy novel, the, the, the character, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking more in terms of, like, the... Uh, I was going back to the 60s in terms of the uh, sort of a cultural explosion of L.A. But yeah, I think you're, you're right also, Um you can go back to the silent movies and the influence they had around the world. Charlie Chaplin being the most recognized human being on the planet 
for many, many, many years. And, and certainly there was tons of cowboy culture in L.A. Um, Charlie Chaplin, and I believe it was, uh, it wasn't Errol Flynn. Um, was it Errol Flynn? Anyway, they used to ride their horses down Hollywood. They used to race their horses down Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> down to Musso and Frank's to see who was going to pay for lunch. So, <laughs> so I, I have to agree with you. The American mythology of the West, of the great expansion of the individual pioneer, is so enshrined in the Hollywood, is Hollywood. But I'm going to disagree with you. One, uh, every major city, every real city is somewhat unique. There is no basis. L.A. is uniquely L.A. And your comet of fractalness, L San Francisco is easy to love. The things about San Francisco are, are mounted on top of hills, like giant coit towers, and I'm not going to get any more precise than that. L.A., you got to turn a corner and suddenly step into a lobby or the view suddenly erupts over the hills. L.A., you got to know to love in, in my limited experience. Well, but people think they know it. That's the, that's the power of Hollywood. Everyone thinks they know America, and they know it through television and movies. J.G. Um, Ballard wrote a novel, I forget what year it was, called Hello, America. At that point, he'd never been to America. He said, basically, the, the America he was writing about was the Rockford Files. Oh, yeah. That's where most of the world gets America from. Well, your character Stark, I mean... I love that you start up, you use first person through all your novels, it's present tense, it makes it real. So whatever year it's set in, and I couldn't figure out at first what year they were set in, but it didn't matter because it was in a lot of ways a very, this is Hollywood, this is the eternal city of whatever the heck it's made itself. It's that you move it between film noir and urban su supernatural and you make it all now. And I think that's one of the things that Hollywood does keep reinventing itself. Maybe there's no horses. Maybe here's the Miracle Mile. Here's Culver City. Here's Torrance. Here's the parts that are a pit right next to the parts that are paradise. Mm -hmm. Well, my brother moved to Los Angeles for, um, for work, although not, but it's not Los Angeles. He lives in, in Chatsworth and his, his wife lives in, she grew up in Hollywood. And her father made guitars. He made all the famous guitars for the rock um, rock musicians, the mm. you know the and things. From there, I have seen parts of LA that, that you wouldn't see because from the people who actually live there, and I find mm. that very interesting. But they have different lives because I had another friend who lived farther south in LA, totally different. And it wasn't until last summer that I actually saw downtown LA at night, which is yeah amazing it's like the opening of bosch when i saw the, the tv show bosch and they show that and i said i've never seen that that can't be la and you're right there are so many different parts of la which adds to the everyman version of of a city it's an every city kind of thing but mm -hmm. it is unique and it is not polite um no yeah and because i i and you might have guessed my husband's from england right. and um <laughs> And I grew up in the in the West, in in um, various states in the West. And I see your point. There's the difference between the the politeness, the inborn politeness, and the kind of I'm slightly more crude and Western. So anyway, there's <laughs> a long way of agreeing with you. And, and Sandman Slim, I can see why you did that in Sandman Slim. I think that's what makes it helps make Sandman Slim. Oh, thank you very much. 
Yeah, I wanted it to be contemporary, but at the same time, so much of the ethos is rooted in the 70s that um, I, I wanted that feel while sort of easing people into my world, which is, yes, it's contemporary, but it's a little off at the same time. So you, you, can, you, you can tell the, sort of in the context of a couple of jokes Stark makes that, in fact, it is contemporary. But yeah, it, it definitely, I went for a 70s drive-in movie feel for, for the series in general. It does. I got to say, you you also do something that makes me unique love Sandman because of all the different books. You have long story arcs. And I feel that sometimes some of the people that the different readerships have compared you to don't really do quite the long story arcs in the same way. They do one long arc. At the end of the book, you save the world. Okay, here's the third book. You save the world. The fourth book, they say, I'm tired of world savings. And I kind of love the way... Sandman, I mean, Stark just starts out, the first thing he does is go to a little hole-in-the-wall movie shop, the likes of which don't exist, and yet you make it real, and it's now. And the problems that he solves are personal, and as he solves personal problems through the books, you see the bigger arc. So that was when I say, I think that's a real skill to plot it out between what is immediately interesting to a man who crawls out of a graveyard from the bowels of hell and goes mm-hmm. here and then goes here and goes the next step. And they're all about his stories. So you both focus us down and give us a big story to tell. How did you plot all that out? That was always the, the, the plan was the, the, the emphasis of the, of the series is stark psychology. The, the whole series, all 12 books are about the rehabilitation of a monster. The first book stark crawls out of hell. And I believe he is clinically insane. He has been abused in the most horrible way, in the most horrible place for 11 years. He has come back to earth looking for revenge. This is not the psychology of a well person. <laughs> well, he, it, his first reaction revenge. is slapping somebody's head off, you know, it's, and yet we still like him, right? <laughs> and that's the thing. And that's, that's another, just, that's a writer trick. I'll just tell you that one. Um, I'll, when I first started writing, the very, very first version of Stark was the same structure. Uh, I wrote up through um, his first trip to Max Overdrive and where he meets Kasabian. So I wrote that whole section, and I don't know, it's like 50 pages. And I wrote it straight. I wrote it third person, past tense, no humor. And it was awful. Oh. <laughs> like, this was a horrible person doing horrible things and nobody would ever like him or want to read about him. Well, and, he was the deep, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I fell back on an old writer's trick, which is basically your character can get away with virtually anything if you make it funny. <laughs> so Stark can cut Stark can walk in, cut off Kasabian's head and people are still with him. Yeah. Because the whole thing is kind of a joke and him crawling out of the, the, the book starts off with him horrified, but still kind of seeing the ridiculousness of his situation that like, I've been in the worst place in the world and now I'm being assaulted by a guy who looks like Brad Pitt <laughs> and that kind of psychology and that kind of just observation is essentially a writer's trick. It's, it's the black humor of cops and EMTs and uh, firefighters. And a hundred euphemisms for hell. And you have the most yeah. quotable hero ever. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, so that was that was basically how I how I sort of got him going because the humor works for the reader, but it also works for Stark, who is trying to cope with being back in this world that he wants to essentially destroy. He wants revenge on the people in his magic circle, but really he kind of like revenge on the world and God. He hates everything, you know, across the spectrum. And that's why I say in that first book, he is clinically insane. And he, he does and says crude things that uh, I don't agree with him sometimes, but in stark psychology, they made sense. They do. And I'm, I'm a little bit jealous because it's very hard to write and succeed with an unlikable female character the way you do in men. But you have things like, my head is full of monsters and I'm one of them is one of my favorite stark lines. And yeah. I liked your, you had a thing of, there's an opposite of love at first sight that you were the first person who ever wrote anything about hating at somebody at first sight, which I think is absolutely as real. We've all yeah. hated somebody we met instantly. Yes, it's true. And humor, I mean, the fact that you give him humor, I think is what makes him human. That's how you know that there's at least part of him that's human that we can all relate to because mm -hmm. when things are horrible, you know, you can still have that cup of tea. You can still be mm -hmm. funny. If he was just Absolutely. a machine, we wouldn't read him. No, that's what I was saying. It's, 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 the, it's the gallows humor of people who live in horrible circumstances. Again, cops, soldiers, EMTs, firefighters, people who've just seen the absolute worst of everything. The only way they're able to cope with it is to make terrible jokes about things that would horrify regular people. Yes, I had a roommate who was a cop who had mm. been an L.A. cop and during the Rodney King riots and I know what you mean. I, I know what you mean about yeah. um, yes. I was going to say, I love that you don't necessarily do throwaway characters, even your Brad Pitt that, you know, dies at the very beginning of it. By saying just the words Brad Pitt, you gave us a complete, okay, I know him. I can relate to him. He's the version of Brad Pitt that I don't like rather than the version of Brad Pitt we yeah. all love. And Viduk. You just, I don't know if you, you deliberately chose the name of my favorite detective for what a great character, but by stealing those things, you instantly give your readers a hook, and that's so neat. Thanks. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the idea. Vidoc is a character who fascinates me, and I'm, I'm, I'm always amused. It's one of those other writerly things that's fun is to just sort of throw strange things into a book and, and just have them there and not, not call attention to them. And then have people come to you later and go, oh, my God, V-Duck's a real person. It's like, yep. <laughs> Always was. It, those of us that adore detective fiction in general, because in a lot of ways, he doesn't come off as detective, but this is detective fiction at its heart because mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out what happened. How did they kill him? Where did they kill him? What happened? Who killed Angel? And I don't want to give anything away, but you let him figure things out in the way that a good detective story lets people figure things out. Yeah, that was that was the model I was working on, um, a, cr a cruder version of that because Stark is isn't really a detective. So V Doc helps him work through things mentally, but then Stark has to do it in his own crude way sometimes. So yeah, he's very much he's sort of um, what are they they call it a bush witch sometimes for a witch who didn't have sort of proper magical training. So he's sort of a bush detective. Oh, okay. Well, it's like, if you're going to go interrogate somebody, the first thing you should not do, and this is for all of our readers, 
don't cut somebody's head off and then interrogate them. <laughs> well, it worked. It worked. Just, so, well, you know. <laughs> you just have to do it in the right way. Now, I had a question for you because I know that your your name is on the front of a Hellblazer, and I also love John Constantine for many of mm-hmm. the same reasons. What came first, Constantine or Stark in this instance? Um, kind of at the same time. I didn't really know who Constantine was when I started the series. I was very... I was lucky when I started writing Sandman Slim and that there was a whole lot of material out there in terms of urban fantasy and things like that that I didn't know about. If I'd, if I'd known about, let's say, Constantine and um, Jim Butcher and Kim Harrison and all these other writers, I might not have written Sandman Slim or written it the way I did because I was kind of innocent that I'd never read any of these people. Um, I was able to just sort of charge in like, hey, look at me. I'm, I'm making stuff up, uh, I'm making this whole new thing up. Really, the influence on the early Stark stuff was Roger Zelazny. It wasn't any of those other people. And then I came to those other people after the first book. But I was lucky enough to have that innocence that get, let me get through Sandman Slim and then I could learn about it and not be quite so self-conscious later. You know, I took a certain amount of abuse for people saying, oh, you're just ripping off um, Harry, uh, Harry Dresden. And I think that's, you know, if you've read Harry Dresden and you've read Stark, other than them being magic guys in a big city, I don't think there's a lot of, yeah. I don't think in terms of psychology, there's not a lot of similarities. Can we cycle back for a moment? Um, say more about Roger Zelazny and his influence. Oh, Zelazny is one of the first science fiction fantasy writers that just knocked me out in terms of just his intelligence, the breadth of his knowledge um, of, of other kinds of literature. He's the first science fiction writer I can remember who I was aware uh, was aware of art beyond the genre. Mm-hmm. He could quote poets and other writers and write in forms that were not was nothing I'd seen in science fiction and fantasy before. Yeah. So that really captured uh, my imagination and kept me with him. He's still one of my favorite writers. And I'm sorry that he doesn't get quite as much. People don't talk about him quite as much as he deserves. I think he's a really essential writer in science fiction and fantasy, even beyond the Amber series. Oh, absolutely. I think your story. Yes. A Night in the Lonesome October is one Great of my book. favorite books. And you never think to yourself, I'm going to be cheering for Jack the Ripper. <laughs> it's a it's a terrific book. It's one of those, and that's that's his brilliance too. You can read that book every year. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. There you go. How did you get involved in? Did you where where did all of this start for you? Did you start as a novelist, or did you start as a journalist, or what brought you into writing? Yeah, I was a journalist at first. Um, I, I studied journalism. Literally, I was in the high school newspaper, and then it just sort of went on from there. I started writing for local Houston newspapers when I was about sixteen because I, I, I discovered I could get free stuff and I, and I could write about things I liked. Um, I could write about music and I could write, you know, I, I, I managed to, to weasel my way uh, off of writing local news, which didn't interest me at all, but I managed to write about a lot of cultural stuff. So uh, that was a real you, kick. You actually, I, I didn't know you for Sandman Slim. I remember my favorite episode of uh, the whole earth review was, mm edited by you and really was a mind-blowing issue um 
about the body about yes, the future. it's the body obsolete. Yeah, it was it was me and Gene Carstensen together did that issue, and that was a lot of fun. And I give them a lot of credit for trusting us because both of us had written articles before we'd never edited. Oh, it was an issue? amazing issue. Oh, the Whole Earth Review, which was now at growth of the, I highly, highly, highly recommend it, of the Whole Earth catalog. Um, yeah. The the magazine just was kind of mind blowing because they would go out somewhat to the edges of news reality is one way to look at i mean not not anything some people would call it weird it wasn't anything words fail me anyway well wonderful I, magazine. I, think, I think the best way to describe it is it was the web before the web existed where you could sit down and you could kind of find a piece of everything you wanted that, that, that yeah. wasn't that wasn't necessarily the mainstream you know i mean right. if, if you want to go find you know, at the time, you know, Newsweek and Time were the two big magazines. Well, if you mm. wanted to find news that wasn't them, mm. you could go to the Whole Earth Review. But then they, the Whole Earth Review would point you to a million other places to find news and culture. Yeah. And if you want to be an, you know, an urban farmer, or if you want to be a scientist. If you, um, if you want to be involved with zines, if you wanted to know. Oh, the zine up. culture that yeah. came out of Whole Earth Review was amazing. And it, it was, they were one of the early people in the 80s saying, you know what? Computers are not computers. You can get online now. I mean, the Whole yeah. Earth had the well which is mm-hmm. one of the yeah. very first open bulletin boards that people yep. and had yes. thousands of members. I think you had, you had the well on the West coast and you had echo in New York. Uh-huh. And there, there was, there was, there was a book about the well, which I have, which I mean, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to me because I don't think I was even online then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been online since 88 uh-huh. in, in the crudest way possible. <laughs> and I used to write for them. I wrote, I wrote a newspaper column, I, I would take Whole Earth Review material, repackage it for a local newspaper. And the modem we used was so slow. Uh, I think it was 300 baud. And you could monitor on another screen, you could monitor the information going to the Houston, uh, excuse me, the uh, SF Chronicle. And the words would pop up as they went through. But it wasn't <laughs> words. It was one letter. Yes. One letter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One letter. And it would take... You know, we're talking about maybe a 500-word piece of writing that would take an hour to transmit. So how did you get from – I used to have a subscription to Wired Magazine. You wrote for Wired mm-hmm. Magazine, and they you, they took your story, Carbon Copy. Who reached out to you and said, I've got to do a movie about this? How did that magic happen? They just called – they called my agent. I mean, it's, cool. it's like a lot of Hollywood stuff. It just sort of falls out of the sky. <laughs> they call me. They call my agent. Always something simple like that. Uh, I'm I'm easier to get a hold of because my email address is public. So a lot of the time I'll, I'll get um, calls from them. And it was just simply one of those, oh, I want to make a movie out of this. And um, great. Give me some money. Yeah. <laughs> there was, I think it was Jim Butcher that was asked, how do you feel about the TV series being so different from your books? And he says, uh, I don't care if it's bad. Everything I write is going to be a bestseller from now on. <laughs> Hooray. There yeah. you go. So uh, it's Sandman Slim. We hear movie, we hear TV. Tell us a story if you can. What's going on? It It's going to be, um, it, it, it bounced back and forth between whether it's going to grow up to be a TV series or a movie. It's a movie right now. There's a new script. There have been, been a bunch of scripts for it over the years. There's a new script that um, is in, I, 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 like there's a certain amount I can talk about, certain amount I can't. Right. There is a new script and things are happening. 
Cool. It's a, it's a movie script, and that's kind of all I can say right now. But it, it is moving forward. So I have a learning question. As I just got off uh, one of Cat Rambo's Screenwriting 101 classes, ah. what did they send you at first? Did they send you just a little short, or did you actually get to see a full, hey, we think this is a script, or did you have any input for it? I'm more, more process kind of question, really. I did some consulting for it, yes. Um, and that was a lot of fun. The... Uh, one of the writers uh, I worked with was they were asking, they were asking the most interesting questions of anybody I ever dealt with in Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, not just this, not just like, well, what's Stark doing here, but like Stark's like getting the deep psychology of Stark and even the minor characters. Oh, that's that was good. a lot of fun. And you don't get that in Hollywood very often where people are really, really digging deep into what are, what are these people's motivations? How does this, how does this part contrast with this part of the story? And are these things linked? And a lot of really smart stuff that made me very happy. That's beautiful. I mean, there's too often we see the, who are you? I've never seen you before. Get away from here. Get in the car. I'm going to save your life. Okay. Yeah. 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 So that would be fantastic. Now I'm even more excited to see it. Yeah, me too. Do we, do we have a guess? Can we, can we hope and dream? Is it 2021, 2022? Oh, I have no idea at this point, okay. uh, honestly. I mean, especially with, with COVID. Yeah. Everything's come to a crashing halt. Um, I know a ton of people in Hollywood right now who are just, you know, they're like, they're like tense cats just about to leap. <laughs> and they've been, that, they've been that tense cat for months now. Just like the moment, it's like, okay, tell us when. Tell us when we can just start shooting something. Come on. And they're all just, they're all just going crazy. Because they know what they want to do, they know who, they have the people, they know how to do it. They just can't get there yet, and that's how everything is for those people right now. It kind of feels like all of our lives. Yes. So you got involved. You created and wrote a Vertigo comic, Accelerate. Oh, yeah. Again, how did how did that come around? Did where, did you just decide you wanted to do it, or did again somebody reach out to you? No, I always wanted to write comics, and did I you, was lucky well, enough to have. What a were your favorites? To um, I had a connection to Vertigo through a friend, and I just sent them a proposal, and they said, uh, "They said let's give it a shot." I love Vertigo. I've always when Vertigo started, I, I was a comics fan from, mm-hmm. and I first got on the internet in '84. But um, <laughs> they, I knew she was going to bring that up. Uh, but I love comics, and I love Vertigo, and I just love the line. So and it seems fitting for Sandman Slam or someone who writes, you know, your, the way you write that Vert. You and Vertigo would seem to go together quite well. A lot of those Vertigo comics really influenced me. And it's really Vertigo that Vertigo and Holly Black are the the ones who taught me that writing fantasy was was a good thing. Because I was strictly a science fiction person when I started out. Uh And my, my agent had an idea she said well why don't you try this and i said i don't write that stuff and she said look at these holly black books and i was already reading i was already getting interested in some vertigo vertigo stuff and then that it kind of all came together i mean ironically looking at old lucifer comics why i ended up writing lucifer Mm -hmm. i then read mike carey's lucifer for a while uh uh, early on like you know it was it was that sort of thing and sandman obviously i'm trying to remember the other stuff that was going on at the time when Holly Black's first book came out, I was at one of the big conventions and I, and I was introduced to, I think it was Charles DeLint mm-hmm. and he was holding a, a Holly Black's first novel 
And he mm. shoved it at me and said, you must go buy this and read it right now. And I was thinking if Charles DeLynn, I'm pretty sure that's who it was, is saying this about this, you know, woman who, who I have never heard of. I'm going to go buy her first <laughs> book and read it. And yes, he was right. So. There are there are those writers like that where you just you know uh, we we just go shut up don't ask questions just buy this. Uh, Kathy Acker was a writer Ooh. friend of mine many years ago, and she did that with um, Cormac McCarthy. She gave me oh. she just she we were in a store together and and she picked up a copy of Blood Meridian and just said don't ask questions <laughs> just get this. You got to respect those for life choices. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I. I love that you you say about yourself that you have no qualifications for anything you do. Yep. We've had so many people say, well, I'm not a writer, but there's this story that I've been thinking about. <laughs> We've been trying to say, yes, that it technically makes you a writer. Yeah. You have an idea. You want to express it. That's what writing is. Yep. Well, exactly. when you write it, then, then you're a writer. Have you ever written, I mean, have you considered writing your own screenplays for things like saying, sure. hell with it. Sandman Slim, why the heck? I mean, Lucifer is a TV show. Why not Sandman? Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've done some, I'll say this, I've, I've done some screenwriting under the table that okay. um, doesn't have my name on it. I've done some of that. Hmm. And I have uh, a horror script that is, there's a producer behind it and we're shopping it around right now. Um, a, I guess I could talk about it. I guess it's been announced. It's a car thief vampire road movie yeah. um, awesome set in texas oh yeah we're in for that set in texas perfect set in texas basically it starts in east texas and goes all the way to el paso so it's all <laughs> the way the whole the whole thing i wanted to cross texas completely so it's basically on on the roads between those two places um and then we dipped out into mexico at the end because again i wanted it to be as texan as possible my entire family is from texas um ah just all over and aunt in El Paso family from East Texas, all the way down. And I grew up in Idaho. (laughs) I think there's an opportunity, especially because Texas is, you can spend days crossing Texas. Like my grandparents grew across it, but I have seen more and more people starting to realize that the roads have a magic all their own. I mean, it's not just uh, what was the, Che Guevara's The Motorcycle Diaries was him driving around, seeing his land for the first time. The things you see on the road and they become more road stories. Seanan McGuire's Sparrow Hill series mm-hmm. and the, the, the Hitchhiker Ghost. There's so many urban legends based on roads that I'm, I'm shocked nobody's coming out before then. And I'm dying to see your vampire on the road thing. Yeah, well, I hope I, I me too. <laughs> <laughs> The thing about Texas, too, is it's so different. It's East Coast on the East and West Coast on the West. Things are damp and green on half of it and Mm -hmm. desert. And there's enough change and enough interesting things that can happen just in the landscape Mm -hmm. um, without even talking about the cities and and so on. That would be a really interesting place. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, well, we have a producer, we have a director, we have kind of a whole package, and we're just doing the Hollywood thing right now with it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Would you would you would you write it up as an as as a novel, regardless of the movie? Uh, I am shopping around a book version right now, just because. Yes. Good. Just just to kind of go, you know, whatever happens, I want the story out there in <laughs> yeah. some form. Yeah, exactly. I think it'd be interesting that Texas has also largely been constructed out of Hollywood. 
Really? So, oh, yes. Right? There are many people that forget that there are any large towns whatsoever in Texas because they're all dusty little truck hmm. stops, right? And, <laughs> and small towns where people sit on a fence and put their feet up and say, y'all ain't from around here, are you? Come on, yeah, my aunt lived in Houston and worked at NASA, so I know there's big Houston. towns there, but nobody thinks of Houston, really. Yeah. Sorry, Houston. When I Texas. I got to disagree with you there because just just the the name Dallas is a TV series goes against that. But Texas contains multitudes, especially multitudes of demons and writers about demons. It seems sometimes. Yeah, I heard ghost stories from my grandmother in um, outside Tyler. One of the things I think about because as a little kid being told ghost stories about <laughs> in in Texas at night is I do have a sense of Texas as being a really good place for ghost stories. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we had them. Uh, I, we had kind of a pre-internet character that was almost Slender Man in a way, <laughs> that kind of very frightening, somewhat demonic, somewhat mysterious figure that would uh, spirit you off uh, into the woods at night. And um, it was it, like all urban legends, especially when you're young. It's like you didn't believe it, but at the same time, you yeah. kind of followed the rules. It's like, it's like, well, if you do this, it's like, it's like saying it's like Bloody Mary. It's like, yeah. I don't believe Bloody Mary, but I won't say it that last time, yeah. just in yeah. case. When I, when I was a kid, I was sure that there were goblins under the bed. Mm-hmm. I was sure. And I would sleep as in the center of the bed mm-hmm. as much as I could. So I was an adult. I was home for um, I was home for a holiday or something. And I was in my childhood bedroom and I'm making the bed and I'm thinking, oh, ha, ha, ha. And this is right before bedtime. So it's dark. But ha, ha, ha. I used to think goblins were under the bed. And my cat chose that moment <laughs> to reach out from under the bed and put her paws around <laughs> my ankle. That's and I great. I teleported out of the room. So, That's great. So uh, if you don't mind, I was going to take a last point and talk about world building, the world building you chose, writing an urban supernatural, because you mm-hmm. naturally you have a little bit of heaven because you use angels, you use demons in a hundred different words for hell. But then you also have a little bit of elder gods and sure, why not vampires and other things. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of go when you were when you were stirring this all up in your pot, how did you decide what your what the rules were for when you were world building. Did you write it all up? Did you think about it or did you kind of pants it and then wrote letters? Tell me about your process. The first book I'd worked out everything. And then as it started expanding, there was a combination of working out my world building and kind of pantsing it along the way. Once I was in a couple of books, it got much firmer in like who everything is, how everything works. And so by the time I got to the end of that first big arc, the six book arc, and we run into the old gods, the Angra Om Ya, um, I, I, I knew how things worked by then. So it was a combination. The first book is very solid. The second book is a little amorphous. But by the end of it, I, I know what things are and how they work. I'm, I, I've taught a few times, and one of the classes I teach uh, writing class is I do I do one section on world building and one of the first rules of world building I tell people is don't get caught up in world building because mm. it can become a fetish and I've seen writers and I've seen kid writers uh, and I I mean that in terms of just just starting out writers not chronological age um, get so caught up in what the napkin rings look like. <laughs> you never get to the story because they think, oh my God, if I don't know 
if I don't know every single thing about the world, I will get something wrong. And you can't let that happen. It's better to be wrong occasionally, especially when you're starting out, than to just sit there being paralyzed. And that's kind of what I did. I worked out enough of the world to write the first book. And then I got, okay, I've done that. They want more. Let's let's get serious and work out the rest of this stuff. Okay. Are there, are there any decisions you made in the early books that you regretted in the later books because they made things difficult or complicated? Or well, there's always those weird things when you uh, if you write a long series, inevitably there's something you wrote in an earlier book that gets in the way of your new yeah. book. But that's second exactly the Yes. But that's creativity. If you've started a, a red painting and all of a sudden you got wow, you know. I like blue today, but it's a red painting. You're going, ah, God damn it. So you have to finish up with that red to make it look right. But then you can, but then you can bring in blue in another way on another piece. So it forced a certain kind of creativity when I ran up against myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd set this limit. Damn it. <laughs> How do I either get around it, create something new or break that rule consciously? Uh, both surprising myself and the reader. I I wanted to admire then how you described the Sub Rosa, which other people have said, this is the demi-monde. This is the twilight world where there's other things Mm -hmm. that you used visceral images and said like this, like that, without having to, you you didn't give, here's all the note cards of all the things that I've decided fit into the neat world of the demi-monde. You just gave beautiful illustrative pictures that helped people feel about what the demimonde might be without having to nail it down in a thousand pieces that you contradict later. So I thought that was a really good device. Well, that's, that's just one of those things I learned early on as a writer is like people only need to know what they need to know at that moment. And then you can fill in stuff later. So if somebody walks into the sub rows of the first time, what are the few sensory details they need? And then you can basically, you can build out from there, even in the same scene, you can build out more information. And then in later areas, you can basically, you can just keep building and keep building, but you don't have to stop the story and go like, well, here are the sub Rosa. They've been around for blah, blah, blah. And they do this and that. It's like, no, what are the few details you know to get things moving? You always have to keep the story moving. Um, the, the, I've, I've had books crash and burn or books I've been reading crash and burn because somebody decided to spend 3000 words again, explaining the, the history of the napkin rings. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to use that as they don't tell me the history of the napkin ring from now on. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and even if the napkin rings are important, you don't have to give me the whole thing in one piece. You dole it out. That's one of the first things, even in my crappy first novel, Metrophage, I learned to break up exposition like that mm-hmm. just break it up into little pieces and give people what they need at that moment to understand the world and then move on and fill in as you go yeah because the napkin rings that are sitting there projecting the hologram of the person who's supposed to sit there then that that's all you need that's you all you need future. at that moment exactly <laughs> and then once the person sits down never mention the napkin rings again <laughs> you don't have to or the napkin rings can become important uh, and become more important later um, because of, because like, oh, that hologram is doing this this time. So what does well, that mean? Is it Chekhov's napkin ring or not? Yeah. You Never know, hang a napkin ring above the murky piece unless you mean to use it. Yeah. I, in, in, book, in the book, the Sam Anselm book, I just finished number 12, the last one. 
Um, there's a lot of checkoff stuff in there, man. <laughs> Tell oh, yeah. we're, we're, I'm paying off stuff that I did in the first book. In book yeah. 12, I'm reaching all the way back to, to the first book. Sure. Was it? Did you always envision it as a 12-book sequence? Did you have it that organized at the start? I, I, knew the first, I knew the first six. I mean, the first six books are a single arc. What? Which is basically, I mean, at the end of book six, Stark has not just saved the world. He saved the universe. Mm-hmm. And you can't keep doing that kind of no. stuff. It gets boring. Mm-hmm. So with book seven, Killing Pretty, the whole idea of the second six was to pull Stark way back. And it's, so it's an L.A. story. Yeah. Um, and then I move. So the whole second arc is much more centered on L.A. and centered on Stark's psychology. So I kind of, so book seven, Killing Pretty, is pretty much a reboot of the series, taking all the stuff that happened before and just channeling it in, in, a, in a brand new way. So I was really lucky in that I got to do the first six, hit that point where they could have stopped me. Mm. And I, I wrote the end of book six in a way that like, okay, if they kill me now, it'll be an ending. But mm-hmm. then they let me keep going. And that allowed me to do the second giant arc, which again, reaches all the way back to the first book. So there isn't going to be a book 13? Not yet. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe in five it? years, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. have a great idea. I look if at the it way, came back to you saying, for God's sake, we need more, we need more Sandman's Um, Would you be able to do that? I need a break. Honestly, okay. but I think of it in terms of I, I don't want to do anything to destroy the series. I wanted to end the series in a way that would make people readers happy. But the idea of stopping the series, at least for a while, is to mm-hmm. it's because you don't want to be the last person at a party. <laughs> well, you want to not- leave while people still want want you around. I'm sorry. Well, there's also people seem to be doing novellas now. People who've done long series have been doing like kind of novellas. In the gaps. In the gaps and things like that. Yeah, I've done one of those. The uh, I, There is one of those that exists already, and I want to do some more short pieces. I have a solo candy story I want to write, a solo V-Doc story, mm-hmm. a solo oh. Allegra story. I, I would but, read more V-Doc. I love him. Yeah. <laughs> You'd read more of anything. Come on. Yeah. That is not true. <laughs> I, and I just wanted to say as one, as one uh, final note, I have a friend who, and I mentioned yesterday that was sitting excited thinking, oh, I get to talk to Richard Cadre, left and said, tell them I have the perfect translation to put on a t-shirt for you. So you ready? Okay. Las Gieti Agni Speranza voi que me ha pato in cazzare. Abandon all hope ye who have pissed me uh, off. Of course. Of course. Because if you were going to do it in, in Dante's Latin, they wanted to give you the, I mean, Dante's Italian. There you go. They want the Italian to put on a t-shirt for you. Hey, hey. Don't be kink shaming some other people. Sorry, nobody's kink shaming. <laughs> we will we will put links uh, to the podcast and the interesting things and all of Richard's links that I can find on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. We answer email. If if somebody sends us a question through our site, can we ask you and you'll answer oh, their sure. questions? Sure, right. sure. Wonderful. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Jared Fischween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our podcast sponsor is Forever Jackal Designs, letting you all buy cool WDC swag to wear and impress your friends. And here's a shout out to our favorite coffee shop, The Bean Scene in Sunnyvale. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.